in the story of uh, the cross and the switchblade, small-town minister David Wilkerson is called to help inner-city kids that everyone else thought were beyond hope. In 1958, seven New York City teenagers, members of a gang called the Dragons, were on trial for murder. After hearing a clear call from the Holy Spirit, telling him to go and help the boys, Wilkerson arrived at the courthouse in New York City. His plan was to ask the judge for permission to share God's love with them. The judge refused, and Wilkerson was removed from the courtroom, became a huge media circus, and he left New York City in total failure. In J.R.R. Tolkien's story, The Hobbit, there's a chapter called Out of the Frying Pan, Into the Fire, which describes how Bilbo Baggins and his friends escape from extreme peril, only to find themselves in an even worse predicament. The adventurers had been traveling through the tunnels under the Misty Mountains, where they were beset by goblins. After a brief and bloody battle, they escaped by the narrowest of margins. But even after Bilbo and his friends got out of the mountain, they were not out of danger. For as they hurried through the forest on foot, they were tracked and surrounded by a pack of wolves. Although Bilbo and his companions managed to scramble up some trees, they were trapped. Soon the go goblins tramped out of their mountain and took advantage of the predicament. They stacked combustible materials at the foot of each tree, and soon there was a ring of fire all around the dwarfs. The flames began to lick at their feet. Smoke was in Bilbo's eyes. He could feel the heat of the flames. And so it was that Bilbo and his friends, they escaped from one mortal danger, only to find themselves in even more desperate straits. These two illustrations describe our scripture this morning. Moses had been called by God to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go. You know, he must have been feeling like it's a done deal. And the Israelites were probably feeling euphoric. They've been told that God is going to rescue them from slavery. And I bet they probably believed that they were on the, the verge of being rescued. The things aren't going to go quite as planned. In fact, Moses' first appearance before Pharaoh will be a total failure. And then seemingly because of Moses' interaction with Pharaoh... The Israelite situation will go from bad to worse as they find themselves in even more dire and desperate straits. You know, Moses and the Israelites are bound to be discouraged by what will happen. God had promised Moses his presence. He had promised the Israelite people that he would bring them out of slavery. But like David Wilkerson, things did not go as planned for Moses. And like Bilbo Baggins and his companions things from the Israelites are going to go from the frying pan into the fire. Discouragement can take over our lives. It can cause us to forget what God has made plain to us through his word and through his Holy Spirit. We must be on guard because Satan will try to discourage us so that we will forget and not believe in his presence and promises. That brings us to our big idea today that we can be encouraged by God's presence with us and his promises to us. 
So before we begin studying our scripture this morning, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit this morning for discernment of your word. Open our hearts and minds to it. Convict us of our sin through it. Teach us what you want us to know from it. Give us divine appointments this week to share it with those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're in Exodus 5, verses 1 to 21. The first point is called confront. And we'll see this in verses 1 through 5. This is what God's word says. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he, must, he may strike us down with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. The first word we see is afterward. We might say, after what? This is referring back to Exodus 4, verses 29 to 31, that we saw last week. It says this. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped him. Moses and Aaron must have been on cloud nine. They received the full support of the elders, which if you remember, that's what Moses was so concerned about at the burning bush. Things could not have started off any better. Now it was time to ride that wave of confidence, confront Pharaoh, and rescue the Israelites from slavery. Quote, this is what the word, the Lord says, unquote, signifies that Moses and Aaron are the Lord's messengers. And we notice a few things here. First, we're told that Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. If you remember, back in uh, Exodus 3, God was saying that Moses would take the elders. <clears throat> Jewish tradition does state that the elders lost their nerve on the way and backed out. Or maybe it's just assumed that they didn't, that they assume that they did go and it's just not recorded. Second, Moses and Aaron don't repeat word for word what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh back in Exodus 3.18. In the New American Standard, it says this. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. We see here that Moses first did not ask Pharaoh's permission, but demanded that he let God's people go. And quote, let my people go, unquote, 
asserts that the people of Israel belong to the Lord, not to Pharaoh. And they should be free to worship and serve him. The first message was direct and authoritative and almost arrogant. Probably because of the awesome response that Moses had received from the elders and the people. Delivering this message would have taken faith and courage because it was not meant to pacify Pharaoh, but to test him. The reason Moses gives to let the people go is so they can hold a festival or a feast to the Lord in the wilderness. And this was not also in God's original words, but what they communicate here was actually not too far off what the Israelite people would have done. In fact, later on, God will establish festivals and feasts for his people, and many of those will involve sacrifices. Pharaoh responds with this, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's questioning God's authority over the Israelites. In fact, the New American Standard says this, why should I obey his voice? That reminds me of what Jesus said in John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, we know that Pharaoh was not one of God's sheep. I do not, I do not know the Lord and will not let Israel go, Pharaoh says. He's hostile not only towards God's people, but toward the one true, true God as well. And we should not be surprised at this, since in his culture, Pharaoh was considered a god. In his mind, he was the final authority. Why should he listen to what he thinks is an inferior god? Pharaoh's reply is scornful, prideful, arrogant, defiant, disrespectful, and sarcastic. It revealed the attitude of his heart. Alexander says, by stating twice that he has no knowledge of Yahweh or the Lord... Pharaoh highlights this motif of knowing the Lord. You know, knowing the Lord is not a matter of having information about him. It's about being in a right relationship with him. It's recognizing his authority and acting in accordance with his requirements. So there's some questions for us this morning. Do we know the Lord? Or do we only know the world? Do we recognize the voice of the good shepherd or only the voice of the world? Are we in a right relationship with God or not? You know, if you know the Lord and are following him with all your heart, mind, and soul this morning, that's great. But if you're not, the great thing is that you can know the Lord this morning. <clears throat> Romans 6.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first thing you need to do to know the Lord is to admit that you're a sinner. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his, only and, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The second thing you need to do to know the Lord is to believe in Jesus and what he came to earth to do. And Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Third thing you need to do is confess Jesus as Lord. And that brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to start knowing the Lord by admitting that I'm a sinner, believing in Jesus as my Savior, and confessing him as the Lord of my life.
Next, Moses and Aaron respond to what Pharaoh says, and this time it's almost word for word, that, what God said in, in Exodus 3.18. Moses and Aaron don't back down, but now they actually clarify their initial demand. They clarify that Yahweh is the God of the Hebrews, which would have been a term that Pharaoh would understand and accept. They clarify they're asking for a three days journey, which really was a reasonable a demand. And they clarify that this journey is designed as a time to offer sacrifices to their Lord. Reichen says, God began by giving his rival a simple opportunity to submit to his divine authority. Was Pharaoh willing to let Israel serve God for even three days or not? Pharaoh would have no excuse for refusing this request and no excuse for hardening his heart. They also add one caveat at the end that is not recorded in Scripture. They wanted to clarify that they were trying to avoid having the Lord kill them off with plagues or with sword. There's a couple ways we could take that last statement. Now, Israel had, had been in Egypt for centuries and had lost contact with the God of their fathers. They were confessedly guilty and needed to be reconciled to the, to the Lord. The only way for them to be atoned was through the shedding of blood, hence the sacrifices to the Lord in the wilderness. McKay says both plague and sword represent sudden death, such as a predicament from offended deities. Moses may also have been appealing to Pharaoh's greedy economic side. You know, if Israel were killed, then he would lose his free slave labor force. It also could have been a prophetic veiled threat. The irony is that the Lord will kill with plagues, not the Israelites, but the Egyptians. God had already told Moses that his mighty right hand would strike the Egyptians with wonders and that he would let the Israelites go. This was probably a warning to Pharaoh of what was coming if he did not let God's people go. Pharaoh needed to understand that it was Almighty God who was commanding them to let his people go to sacrifice and worship him, and the Lord was not to be taken lightly. Pharaoh responds by accusing Moses and Aaron of taking the people away from their work, and then he orders the people to get back to work. Now, this might actually mean that the elders were there, which is why he accuses them of stopping the people from working. It could also, in addition, mean that once Moses and Aaron told the people that God was going to rescue them, they stopped working, believing that the Lord's rescue was soon. We see Pharaoh's disdain for the Hebrew people as he calls them people of the land, meaning uneducated, the common people, peasants. Now, he knew that what Moses and Aaron were proposing would be a major upheaval, and it was already causing problems. If you think back, the Pharaoh of chapter 1 was worried about the Israelites' population growth. This Pharaoh sees it as a benefit because it means more slaves to do his work. Pharaoh is hardening his heart right in front of us. Now, scholars are somewhat split on this exchange between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Most agree that they went into Pharaoh's court highly confident of the outcome. 
maybe too confident, a little cocky. Some said they went off script instead of retelling Pharaoh exactly what God said the first time. But others say that this would have been the negotiation technique of the day. But that's not the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is, whom will the Israelites serve? Who will they worship? Pharaoh or the Lord? The Hebrew word, Pastor mentioned this before, that the Hebrew word for serve and worship are the same. The struggle here was not between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, but between God and Pharaoh. Ross says the purpose of the Exodus was to bring the Israelites from an oppressive, deadly servitude to Pharaoh into the freeing, life-giving servitude to God. Life is not a question of serving or not serving. It is a question of whom will we serve. Joshua 24, 15 says this. This is Joshua talking to the Israelite people before he died. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the God your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living, that for me and me and my household I will serve the Lord. We all have to decide who we will serve and who we will worship. Will we serve and worship the Lord, or will we serve and worship the, the world and its gods? It's an important decision for each one of us. And that brings us to the second next step this morning, which is commit to serving and worshiping only the Lord for the rest of my life. Now, we aren't told what Moses and Aaron were feeling after their audience with Pharaoh, but we can surmise that they're pretty discouraged. They've been rejected. You know, Moses and Aaron had been called by the Lord to be his messengers, and Pharaoh had pretty much thrown them out on their ear, dismissed and discouraged and disgraced. They probably felt a lot like David Wilkerson when the judge had him removed from the courtroom. But Moses and Aaron just need to remember a couple things. One, God said that he would be with Moses. In Exodus 3.12, it says this, And he, meaning God, said, Certainly I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will show worship God at this mountain. Two, God had promised to bring his people out of slavery. In Exodus 3.17, it says this, And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flown with milk and honey. Three, God was sovereign and omniscient. He knew everything. He knew what was going to happen. Exodus 3, 19 and 20 says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. You know, Moses and Aaron were probably discouraged by Pharaoh's response, but they didn't despair. They had God's presence with them, his promises to them, and they knew his sovereign plan. And they could be encouraged by that. 
no matter what Pharaoh said or did. Once Moses and Aaron had confronted Pharaoh with God's message and he had rejected it, Pharaoh makes a command decision which would move the Israelites' predicament from the frying pan into the fire. And that's our second point this morning, which is command. Found in verses 6 to 14. Follow along as I read those verses. That's what God's word says. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what the Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today, as before? See, Pharaoh didn't waste any time after his audience with Moses and Aaron. It says on that same day, he commanded the slave drivers and foremen over the Israelites to no longer give the people straw. They had to keep the daily quota the same, though. They'd have to gather the straw themselves, which would require more time to make the bricks, make it impossible to meet the daily quotas. On the same day, made it clear that the Increased workload was Moses and Aaron's fault. Ross says Pharaoh had to break his opponent's will in two ways. One, he had to make the oppression worse. And two, he had to undermine Moses' leadership. It seems that the straw needed to make the bricks had previously been supplied for them, probably by some other slave populace, which would make the brick production more efficient. But this command shows Pharaoh's hardening heart. Pharaoh was spiteful toward the, toward the Israelites. He didn't care about efficiency. He only wanted to humiliate the people because they wanted to worship their Lord. We also see what Pharaoh really felt about the Israelites. He's already called them peasants, now he calls them lazy. In Pharaoh's mind, they didn't want to work, which is why they were crying out to go and sacrifice to their God. His command was meant to make the work harder on the Israelites causing them to be too tired to care about worshiping and too tired to pay attention to Moses and Aaron's lies. What lies? The lies that they'd be allowed to leave Egypt to worship their Lord. The lie that their Lord was going to rescue them. This was really cruel and un unusual punishment. And I found it interesting. I found that it would have been normal in that time for Pharaoh to allow the foreign slaves to go and worship their own gods. You know, they would have allowed them to go off and do this so they wouldn't offend the religious sensibilities of the Egyptian people. You know, they would have been put off by certain animal sacrifices. 
But we see that Pharaoh was in no way going to let Moses take the people to do what would have been considered normal. He didn't hear the Lord's voice. His heart was not inclined towards God, becoming more hardened by the minute. We see that Pharaoh's commands followed a chain of command, from himself to the Egyptian slave drivers, to the Israelite foreman, to the Israelite people. Just like Moses and Aaron in verse 1 said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The slave drivers and foremen said, this is what Pharaoh says. This was another example of the conflict being really between God and Pharaoh. Riken says, Pharaoh put himself in the place of God, and he explicitly attempts to usurp God's rightful place. The Hebrew word for foreman literally means to write. You know, the Egyptians kept meticulous, meticulous records of everything, including their building projects. And the Israelite foreman would have been men who could write, and they could keep the people producing the daily quota of bricks. Because of the command from Pharaoh, it says the Israelites had to scatter throughout the land of Egypt, and they had to gather stubble to make the bricks. It's really ingenious on Pharaoh's part because the people had to scatter to find their own straw, which kept them from encouraging their brothers and sisters and keeping them from getting their hopes up to go on this three-day journey to worship the Lord. By making them work harder and keeping them apart, Pharaoh thought he could make them forget about their God and wanting to worship him. It was interesting, this was not the season for straw, so the people had to gather stubble. It would not have been the best stuff to make bricks with. There was probably good straw in storehouses that would be used in the all season, but this would not be made available for their use. The stubble would have made bricks of inferior quality, but Pharaoh doesn't seem to care. Another sign that he was just oppressing the people on his cruel whims and because he could. As this labor policy, it was completely irrational, showing his hard heart. And when they did not meet their daily quota, the slave drivers pressed them to complete their work quotas like before. And this led to the slave drivers questioning the foreman about the shortfall and beating them for the people not making their quota. You know, for the Israelites, and especially the foremen, their life, their work, and their enslavement had gone from bad to worse. They'd gone from the frying pan into the fire. Now, again, we aren't told that the Israelite slaves and foremen were feeling how they were feeling, but after working twice as hard and then being beaten for not making the quotas, we can surmise they were pretty discouraged. You know, God has sent Moses and Aaron specifically to let them know that the Lord has seen their oppression and was going to bring them out of slavery. And all they had gotten for it was exhaustion, working harder every day, and being beaten. They're probably feeling like Pharaoh got the last laugh. They probably felt like Bilbo Baggins and his friends who had escaped from one mortal danger only to find themselves in more desperate and dire straits. But in their discouragement, they need to remember a couple things. One, that the Lord had seen them, and he was concerned for them. And two, the Lord had promised to rescue them. 
Even though the Israelites were discouraged by Pharaoh's barbaric response to Moses and Aaron's request, they could still be encouraged. It had only been a short time since they had bowed down and worshipped the Lord. Now they need to remember and be encouraged that God's presence was with them. He had made promises to them, and his sovereign plan would be victorious, no matter what Pharaoh did to them. After the people were not, being, were not able to make their daily quota of bricks, and the slave drivers had beaten the foreman, we notice how the foreman react. Our third point this morning is complaint, found in verses 15 to 21. Again, this is what God's word says. Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants were give, are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are. You're lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and make sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw that you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you're not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The foreman, after being beaten because the Israelites failed to make their daily quotas, complained. And it's important to notice who they complained to. First, they complained to Pharaoh. You know, they must have enjoyed a somewhat amiable and privileged relationship with Pharaoh, that they could go and plead their case with him. But they must have been naive to think that the slave drivers had given these commands on their own authority. You know, they also blamed Pharaoh and his people for the Israelites not making the quota. Notice that they call themselves Pharaoh's servants three different times, showing how much power Pharaoh had over them. The real problem here is that instead of turning to the Lord, who they were just bowing down and worshiping to, they turned to Pharaoh. It reminds me of one of the major themes of the passage. Who were the Israelites going to serve, God or Pharaoh? They must have had a rude awakening as Pharaoh accused them twice of being lazy, emphasizing that their laziness was due to their desire to sacrifice and worship the Lord. Again, he's arguing that they didn't necessarily want to worship. They just didn't want to work. He's mocking. He's belittling them and mocking the worship of their Lord as laziness. He was demoralizing them, and they were literally being beaten down. He ordered them to get back to work, and reiterated they would not be given any straw, but they still had to produce their full quota of bricks. You know, Pharaoh continues his ingenious plan to turn the people against Moses and Aaron. They were the ones who went to Pharaoh, asking him to let the people go. They were the reason Pharaoh was being so harsh towards them. After bringing their complaint to Pharaoh and being unceremoniously rejected, they realized they were in trouble because the beatings were going to continue. Talk about being discouraged. Talk about feeling going from the frying pan in the fire, especially for them. 
Second, we see that the foreman take the complaint to Moses and Aaron. Our scripture says that when the foreman left Pharaoh, they find Moses and Aaron, Aaron waiting for them. Actually, the Hebrew is better translated that the foreman were waiting for Moses and Aaron, meaning that they went looking for a fight. Really, we see the heart of the foreman here. They attack Moses and Aaron. They blame them for their trouble. They actually curse them and call down God's judgment on them. They were hard-hearted, believing that Moses was the reason for their oppression, instead of believing that he was God's instrument to end their oppression. Stuart says it is noteworthy that the foreman did not state that they had lost faith in Yahweh. They apparently thought that Moses and Aaron could not have properly represented the case or handled it well. Thus they had disobeyed Yahweh. Pharaoh's strategy to break the Israelites' will and to drive a wedge between Moses and the people was really working like a charm. The foremen were discouraged. They had allowed bitterness to grow in their hearts, and it caused them to sin against Moses and Aaron, lashing out and cursing them. Now, discouragement's a human, human emotion. You know, it's not a sin to be discouraged, but it can cause us to sin as it did to the foreman. It's important for us today to not allow discouragement to set in and cause us to sin. Discouragement can cause us to doubt God. It can cause us to doubt God's people. It can even cause us to lash out at others and curse them. The foreman had been kicked out of Pharaoh's presence, just as David Wilkerson had been. Got kicked out of the courtroom, and things had gone from the frying pan and the fire for them, just as it had for Bilbo Baggins and his friends. Discouragement caused them to forget God's presence and his promises, instead of being encouraged by them. The devil once had a yard sale. He put all his tools with a price sticker on each one. There were a lot of them, including hatred, envy, jealousy, doubt, lying, pride, and lust. Apart from the rest of the tools was an old, harmless-looking tool with a high price. One of the devil's customers asked about this high-priced tool. The devil said, why, that's discouragement. The customer asked, why do you have such a high price on it? The devil responded, that's one of my most useful tools. When other tools won't work, I can pry open and get into a person's heart with discouragement. Once I get inside, I can do whatever I want. It's easy to get into a person's heart with this tool because few people know that it belongs to me. It is said that the devil's price on discouragement is so high that he'll never be able to sell it. And as a result, he continues to use it. He often uses it with his oldest tool. Did God really say that? Are you sure he's called you to do that? Well, you sure made a mess of things, haven't you? Charles Spurgeon, talking about the life of Moses, concludes with these words. O servants of God, be calm and confident. 
Go on preaching the gospel. Go on teaching in Sunday school. Go on giving away the tracts. Go on with steady perseverance. But be sure of this. Ye shall not labor in vain or spend your strength for naught. Do you still stutter? Are you still slow of speech? Nevertheless, go on. Have you been rebuked and rebuffed? Have you had little else than defeat? This is the way of success. Toil on and believe on. Be steadfast in your confidence. For with a high hand and an outstretched arm, the Lord will fetch out his own elect. And he will fetch some of them out by you. Only trust in the Lord and hold on to the even tenor of your way. There's going to be times where we don't understand why things are working out the way, they sh- the way that they are. They're not working out the way that we think they should. We've been called by God to do his work in this world, but we may be thrown out on our ear, and our lives may feel like they're going from the frying pan in the fire. <laughs> but do not be discouraged, and do not despair. Don't let discouragement cause you to sin against God or others. God's timing and plans for our lives and this world are perfect. His promises to always be with us and to never forsake us. And he promises, and we know that his promises are true. That brings us to our last next step this morning, which is to be encouraged by God's presence with me and his promises made to me when discouragement comes my way. As Yeshua's prepared to collect the tithes and offerings and the praise team comes forward to lead us on our final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your word. It is true and it is powerful. Let it transform us to know you better each day. Help us to commit to serving and worship you only. And when discouragement comes our way, Encourage us with your presence and promises so that we don't sin against you or others. In Jesus' name, amen.